Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast with myself, Miriam Francois. This is our second episode, and today we are joined by Angela Saini, who is the author of the newly released book, Superior, The Return of Race Science. She's a British science journalist and presenter, and her latest publication has received high praise indeed. In the words of Reniedo Lodge, it roundly debunks racism's core lie. So thank you so much for joining us, Angela. Thank you know that you've been off social media for a while now um is that is that since the book was released where where have you been well um i just went back on twitter yesterday but i took um about two or three weeks off because i was getting a huge amount of trolling online which i expected to get because i do in superior i do call out um extremists, people on the right um, who flirt with racist pseudoscience or who outrightly are scientific racists. And uh, I did expect them to come back at me and they did very quickly after the book came out. They started writing reviews in the alt-right press and posting YouTube videos and attacking me on social media. So I had to leave for a little while just for my sanity. Um, But I was very grateful that um, readers of the book um, were really good in reporting the abuse online so things were taken down and accounts were found to be in violation of social media rules and so there there has been some progress made but I have to say not enough Mm. I don't think the social media companies do nearly enough to tackle the rise of extremism online. Mm. And so in terms of the the abuse that you were receiving um, you, I mean, obviously in the book, you, you call out some of these, as you say, pseudoscientists or figures on the, the far right or even the alt right, depending on, on how you prefer to dub it, um, who use pseudoscience to try and buttress their arguments. And I was just wondering if you might be able to perhaps name and shame some of the main culprits, yeah. because sometimes they can be hiding in plain sight, can't they? They can, they can kind of be figures that we might be um, very aware of or they might be given a, a, a public platform in the media and so it's not always clear that they're actually talking complete nonsense. Well the people I look at in the book specifically um, are largely associated with one journal called the Mankind Quarterly. Uh, this was a publication that was set up after the Second World War really to disseminate the kind of um, racist ideas that other journals would no longer print because of what happened in the Second World War, because of the Holocaust and Nazi eugenics and Nazi racial hygiene. Those ideas around race became completely taboo and unacceptable for very good reasons, both scientifically and morally. Um, But there was a small group of people, scientists who disagreed, including Nazi race scientists, including some people in Britain, in America and elsewhere. So they set up this journal, the Mankind Quarterly, and it's still in publication today. So the people I call out in the book are the editors of this journal, people who publish in it. They are not everyday names, most of them, but um, they are very active online. They have very close, tight networks. Historically, they have been very well funded by kind of racist men of wealth. Mm -hmm. And um, they are just... uh, I mean, what's incredible to me is how clever and sophisticated they are that they have been over the last 70 years in massaging their arguments, manipulating and abusing scientific data in order to produce this kind of racist and often sexist pseudoscience, which they then pump out 
uh, not just through their journal, but now very much online. They so, have their own online journals. So just out of interest, so for people who say, well, look, you know, there's obviously going to be um, quacks on the on the margins producing, you know, pseudoscience and, and, and poor YouTube videos. Why why does it matter that these guys are pumping out this very bad science? And can you give us a sense of what what you mean by bad science? Because I think obviously when we talk about um, the Second World War and Nazi eugenics, was that was that the beginning of the um, sorts of conceptions of race that you're that these guys are talking about? Or, or is there a precedent prior to that? No, there's a long tradition of it. And it goes back actually to the Enlightenment. So even Enlightenment philosophers um, believed that there was some kind of racial hierarchy between human beings, even though the Enlightenment obviously famously universalized humanity and it brought humanity under one banner. At the same time, there was this idea that there was a kind of gendered and racial hierarchy within the human species. And uh, that continued, you know, well through the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, even Charles Darwin, he was a huge uh, advocate against slavery, an abolitionist, as was his family. But he also believed that perhaps not all races were equal. So it was very common in the 19th century and early 20th century for scientists to believe, for example, that perhaps even there were subspecies within humans or that we were different breeds of people within the human species. Mm. And um, that is what gave rise to the kind of abuse of um, these ideas for political agendas. Nazi racial hygiene was kind of predicated on this idea that certain groups were inferior or superior to others. Um, and modern day race science is really just an extension of that. It's the survival of those ideas which were around for so long and were mainstream for a large chunk of history. Um, that these people, and I have to say they're growing, they do matter because modern day politics is affected by these people. Mm. The kind of lexicon that we use when we talk, when people talk about diversity of opinion, this is a phrase that emerged from this group of people. You know, in order to get a toehold in mainstream discourse, they use these phrases in order to justify their presence. Mm -hmm. And they really are pseudoscientists. There's no reason for us to listen to them. There's no reason that they should have a platform. But they complain that their views aren't getting heard because there's this kind of left wing. For 70 years, they've been arguing that there's been this kind of left wing conspiracy to keep them quiet. When really, it's just mainstream scientists saying this work is not scientific that they yeah. kind of frame it as a political question. And when it becomes political, then people say, well, then we have to hear from all the different sides because this is political. It's not political. This is just mm. scientific. This is just about facts. And what they're doing is abusing the facts and then using politics as a way to get that those abused and manipulated facts out there in the public gaze. And they're winning online. They are incredibly powerful. They have thousands and thousands of followers and you can hear the phrases that they've used entering mainstream political discourse. Mm. Well can you give us some examples so that maybe uh, listeners can can pick up on the ways in which that really bad science is, is seeping into the mainstream? Well I think in some ways we've never really completely left it behind. We still think in racialized ways um, and that's to be expected because race is politically and socially important to us. Um, it defines how we're perceived by society, how we're treated by society, especially in multicultural societies like Britain and the US. Um, 
but this conflation between the social and political reality of race and the biological reality of race, and race is a social construct, these categories, however real they may feel to us culturally, mm. are actually not real in biology or genetics. Yeah. There's a lot of that kind of overlap that happens by everyday people. We all do it. We yeah. all think in these ways sometimes. We all think, oh, you know, uh, th that person's Irish and they've got this kind of, you know, certain quality to them. That person's Spanish or they've got a certain quality to them. We think in these essentialized ways about who people are based on where they come from, which is not an idea that's borne out at all, obviously, by genetics. Mm -hmm. You know, we are all different, but the vast majority of the difference between us, and I'm talking about, you know, more than 95% of the difference that we see between us is individual difference. Mm. So that is to say that, so I am of Indian heritage. My parents were born in India. I was born in the UK. But it's perfectly possible for my genome, if my genome were to be sequenced, for my genome to have more in common with my white neighbor than my Indian neighbor. And that's yes. how vastly important individual differences. Yes, I have heard that. So to, to, to what extent would you say that our uh, the co contemporary conversations about race, because obviously race is a very uh, prevalent uh, topic in the public arena these days, you know, whether it's racism rouse or debates over equality and what that looks like. To, to what extent are the even those conversations being informed by a poor understanding of the science of race, would you say? I think to a very large extent. Um, and and science, scientists themselves are partly to blame for this, that over the last 70 years, when they should have been reinforcing um, the science for the public, showing them exactly why the group differences that they think are so big actually only exist on the very, very margins of our genome, that the vast majority of difference doesn't sit in that way. Um, there's a lot of muddy thinking within scientific research, and that itself has fed these ideas. And there's also a lot of unconscious and conscious racism within the scientific academy within the establishment, people have not fully left these ideas behind. And I still see it. Um, I mean, in Superior, I go into a lot of detail, but in medicine particularly, I constantly see people using race as though it's biologic, a biological fact. Um, you know, we get told that certain groups have more propensity to this or this. And that is very vague, very often. And usually race is being used as a proxy for something else like culture or diet or some other factors that affect our health that actually are not because of some genetic difference. Oh, that's really interesting because I definitely have heard the idea that, you know, uh, certain groups might be less responsive to certain medicines or um, and obviously there are the, the, the usual tropes that we so often hear about certain um, so-called race racial categories being better at sports or certain being um, I, I know recently that the uh, Nobel Prize winning scientist James Watson I think he was who was probably best known as the father of the the genome project right he he made some comments claiming basically that the um, uh, in, there were measurable differences between the intelligence um, I think he referred to the intelligence of uh, white people versus black people, which, mm. you know, according to science, are invented categories. Mm. So, so I mean, where where does this all fit in, really? Why 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 would someone like 
you know, he was Professor Watson. I think he's been stripped of his academic title since then. Um, someone you'd expect to be steeped in science and knowledgeable be mm. making statements like these. How is that possible? Um, well, we have to consider his age, first of all. So uh, Professor Watson is um, in his 90s. So when he was born, these ideas were completely mainstream. There was nothing kind of particularly controversial about suggesting that black people were intellectually different from white people in America. And we have to remember also that he is American. This is the, you know, in the UK and in the US, these ideas were very widespread. And this um, this can kind of explain, I think, a lot of it. It's very difficult when we're inculcated with a certain worldview, even the most objective of us, even those who try really hard to counter our biases. And I don't think James Watson is one of these people. But even yeah. those of us who try really hard find it really difficult to let go of it. And particularly within science, you find these people who are really clever and the world tells them they're geniuses. You know, Watson has won a... a co-won a Nobel Prize mm. and they don't see their prejudices always as prejudices they just see it as fact and the rest of the world just doesn't ex just doesn't understand properly you know that the rest of the world doesn't get where they're coming from because we're just not smart enough so in some ways prejudice has been perpetuated in science for much longer than it has in the rest of society because scientists think that they're above it they think that they're better than the rest of the world that they think they're better than uh, the everyday politics or identity politics or sexism or racism. They think that what they think is just fact. Um, and that means the prejudice that was kind of steeped in science right from the beginning, um, it didn't go away. It took a much longer time to go away. So, for example, if you look at women being admitted into the sciences, women in the UK or some women in the UK got the vote in 1918. It took until 1921 for women to be uh, admitted uh, to Cambridge University and Oxford University as graduates, 1920 and 1921. It took until 1945 for the Royal Society to start admitting women as members. Marie Curie, in the same year that she won her second Nobel Prize, was refused admission of the French Academy of Sciences because she was a woman. Mm -hmm. So there was that sexism and racism lasted much longer because here was a body of people who thought that they were being objective when in fact they were had for so long of course been affected by the bias of everyday society. They just didn't see their own prejudices as bias. And that still happens now. I still see scientists who think that they're being completely fair and, you know, they're being completely objective when in fact they're looking through their own lens and not questioning their biases when they're doing their research. And so if 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 those scientists and I'm I'm quite interested in the extent to which those ideas of of um shaped our understandings of racial hierarchies in the mainstream because I one I always wonder about this Phil philosophically the ideas of the enlightenment continues to inform how how many of us think about the world it's what what mm. we've been taught it's it's infused in the literature we read it's um, part and parcel of what shapes our outlook and the history yeah. we've understood um, and so if that is also true within science, to what extent has the body of science, which which was created to justify human mm. hierarchies along the lines of race, to what extent has that body of knowledge been 
ejected, if you like, from, from mainstream science learning, from the big institutions, and to what extent is it still being engaged with, maybe with some caveats, the way that we do, the, the way that we might say, well, um, you know, uh, certain great philosophers, sure, they did have uh, problematic views about black people, but that was just the times, mm. you know, but we still take their ideas. Mm. Is that also true within science? It is. Um, I mean, I have to say the Enlightenment was so good in so many ways because it did introduce, you know, the, the scientific method, the Western modern scientific method in empiricism is so good. It's a really brilliant way of understanding the universe and it's so important for us. And for me, as a humanist, it is the best way we have of understanding the world and who we are. But um, we have to accept that science is always done in a context it always has been. And the reason that mistakes have been made in science in the past, errors have been made, is because scientists have sat in a particular political context, looked at the world through that lens and, and failed to understand that they had that lens in the first place. That yeah. they thought they were being objective, but they weren't. And we still have that problem. Society mm. is not, we're, we're not living in a perfect society. It is still deeply racist. Academia we have a huge problem with representation in academia. Is that purely because people are so different? Are there so few women and black professors because women and black people are not so good at doing science? Of course not. It's mm. because there is this inherent problem still within the establishment. And um, research reflects that. Research has always, especially when it comes to research on humans and human behavior, has always reflected the times that we live in. The only way to counter it is to understand the ways in which it does that, to understand the context in which you're doing your research, to understand the history of it, the social and cultural framework around it, and to counter your biases internally as much as possible. And this is something I think we all need to do because every single one of us, uh, however woke we might think we are, mm. have these biases within us. And I always say to people, when people ask me, you know, I know that there's this scientific racist operating here, how do I counter them? And I always say to people, you start with yourself. You think about the ways in which you think about human difference and ask yourself, are you completely fair to the people that you meet? Are you completely um, balanced and objective in the way that you think about human difference? And when you've gone through the process of challenging yourself, then go out and challenge the rest of the world. And it's not easy. I do it every single day. It's really difficult for me and I haven't got there yet to be able to treat every new person that I encounter on face value, not bring any kind of sexual or gender or racial baggage or cultural baggage to that person in my own mm. head and just treat them for who they are it's a really difficult thing to do really difficult and, um, do you, and do you, yeah sorry go on well I was just going to say this is a process that each of us need to go through and I think if we do then we can better understand why other people have prejudices that we don't have you know we and, then we can start to understand why racism and sexism exist so do you think that it is just a matter of uh, you know, debunking the bad science, because I do know that some people would say, well, actually, that attributes the cause of racism to, if you like, a sort of scientific ignorance, um, which, which is why we, ho we hold racist beliefs versus maybe the, the idea 
uh, within uh, social and political sciences more so that that actually this is to do with power, right? Yeah, so yeah. yeah, and so and so the attribution of differences isn't so much to do with ignorance about you know biological differences or assumptions being made about um, bad science based on bad mm-hmm. science, but actually the idea that we we are very uh, and, and white people in general as the stakeholders of power in this conversation are very uh, content to remain within these um, paradigms of understanding because they continue to pe- perpetuate hierarchies of power, uh, yeah. which is what hierarchies of race uh, allow us to maintain. What, yeah. What's your view on that? Well, this is what superior lands on in the end. When I was writing the book, it is all about power and it always has been in the sciences even, the way that racial difference has been framed, the even even the idea of a racial hierarchy or the idea that there is there are races in the first place is a product of uh, power balances at the time that these ideas were invented. Um, and that's still the case now. These hardcore racists, including the scientific racists, are not racist because they've faithfully examined the evidence, the scientific evidence, and decided that we're not equal. They were racist first, and they were racist because whatever in society made them racist, then they go out and look for whatever they can to justify their prejudices, you know, whatever intellectual arguments they can find to justify their prejudices. So in some ways, dismantling those intellectual arguments is not enough because they were racist already and they will still be racist afterwards. They will just keep reaching for whatever new thing, even if it's the most bizarre, ridiculous, strange argument they can, they will reach for that in order to justify what they believe. But it's their belief that we have to tackle. And that's a psychological issue, right? That's about tackling everyday racism society, the structures, the, you know, it's fundamental. It's a huge job to dismantle how race works in everyday life is not an easy thing. That is a long, slow process. And tackling the pseudoscience is not enough because the pseudoscience is just one tool in the racist kind of tool belt. So on that note, if poor science, bad science, false science is in fact not the cause of the the racism that we're seeing today in that it not only creates but buttresses categories that we take as given Mm. what then would you regard as being the source of racism Uh, and of course I know uh, in in critical race studies this is a a big question I mean where where does the buck stop presumably from what you're saying it's it doesn't actually stop at the biology it doesn't stop at science I'm not sure that it stops anywhere, to be honest, because it's it affects all of us. We are all victims and perpetrators of these ideas. And every single one of us has to question our own understanding of these issues. It's not about one group of people against another group of people. It's about lots of different interests competing with each other. So even within, um, so one of the issues I look at in Superior is caste in India. So here is a society, a country that was once as a whole deemed uh, racially inferior by the British. Mm-hmm. But even within India, there are there are hierarchies between people which are um, hardened by caste that mean that some Indians think of themselves as superior to other Indians. So whenever you have any kind of power balance, that historically often 
uh, results in people then framing their power not as kind of the product of historical or cultural or economic factors, but as somehow natural. There is something to them deep down that makes them powerful. And the and the strength of that argument is that then nobody else can claim it. If we can say that um, Western civilization is superior, and the reason for that is because people in the West, white Europeans, are somehow biologically special, then nobody else can have that power. Then it only belongs to them because nobody else can share that genetic legacy. And yeah. this is what they do. They take... Wherever you see this happening, and you see it happening in lots of ways all over the world, so this isn't just about white supremacy, this is about lots of different power balances all over the world. You see it in China, you see it in Africa, you see it everywhere. Mm. Um, is that power being being framed as natural? And that uh, is very difficult to break down because it's something um, we have done historically, you know, well into antiquity. Uh, you know, ancient Egyptians did it, the Romans did it, the Greeks did it. We think about... So, you know, some essence deep down that makes us special. Um, whatever form that takes, in modern society that takes the form of race, but it's taken different forms in different periods of time. Um, that's what I think we have to be careful about. But I think the science matters because it gives this kind of intellectual ballast to political arguments. If you say that something is scientific, then it feels that it's beyond reproach. You can't argue with it. This is fact. So nothing else matters and this is what um, the alt-right finds so attractive about pseudoscience online is that it kind of gives them the feeling that they have the truth on their side they often use this argument online you can see them saying this isn't about feelings this is about fact the truth doesn't care about your feelings or you know this isn't about politics this is just about the truth that we are those of us who in mainstream science believe that race is a social construct we're somehow science deniers and mm -hmm. they have some kind of privileged access to the truth that we don't have in mainstream science and that's kind of crucial to their argument and that persuades a lot of people online as well if you're kind of on the edge if you're this person who's not entirely sure where you sit politically those kind of arguments can have a lot of power yeah, and, it, and it's also interesting listening to you um, talk about that, that the idea that actually a lot of what we might think of um, as um, the, the basis for universal principles is actually quite a Western-centric uh, conception of truth. And what I mean by that is the alt-right figures you're describing um, like to use empiricism as the basis, even if we, you know, clearly it's bad, it's false empiricism, it, it's bad science as the basis for their truth claims, but yeah. actually not all cultures would regard empiricism as the only, only basis for truth. Um, that is a very much uh, very much a product of, of, uh, of European, I would have thought, um, notions of what constitutes truth with a capital T. And, and to that extent, I'm, I'm also wondering if we, if we sort of move the conversation onto whiteness slightly, because I'm always interested in how and when we talk about conversations around race and racism, the default is always to talk about, uh, you know, any other uh, racial group apart from white. Um, to, to what extent has the research you've done into in your book helped inform your understanding of what whiteness looks like here in the UK or in, or in, in Europe more broadly? Um. I don't know, that's a difficult question to answer because I think what I've done, I think we 
we all over the world because of American um, cultural hegemony tend to think about race in a black-white issue, as a black-white issue often, but actually race manifests itself very differently depending on the country that you're in. So in India it takes one form, in China it takes one form. In the UK, um, a lot of the kind of racism that we see at the moment is Islamophobia. That's not to say that other groups don't aren't victimized and suffer huge discrimination as well, they do, but the focus of prejudice changes depending on the politics of the time and at the moment um, a lot of what we saw during the Brexit debate um, and subsequently and especially you know with the rise of Islamic fundamentalism which I think has a huge role to play in the way that white supremacists have responded in Europe to um, gather support has you know, this has kind of been a big part of the puzzle. There's this mm. kind of anti-Islamic um, movement within Europe, which has taken on a racialized tone. There's no doubt about it. Um, well, so on on that particular subject, when you talk about um, kind of racism taking different forms in different countries, mm. um, to what extent have European notions of um, racial hierarchy, which obviously are as we discussed, grounded in Enlightenment philosophy and then the, the, the very poor science which emerged um, out of seeking to justify those those hierarchies of domination, do they bleed into other cultures' uh, forms of racism? And I'm particularly thinking about the ways in which, you know, the kind of adulation of, of whiteness, even if we're talking about physical whiteness or white physical features or um, the extent to which uh, white codes, meaning European-centric codes, whether they be dress codes, style codes, tend to be favoured um, in in different societies, even outside of Europe. Um, so, what's the what is the connection that you might see between uh, European whiteness, British whiteness, and and, and forms of um, racism that you're seeing in other contexts? I mean, I know you said you mentioned India. Mm. There is, I mean, there is colorism um, in very many different countries in the world. To what extent that is informed by European racism, uh, I'm sure there's an element of that. I think it would be remarkable if there wasn't, um, you know, these ideas of cultural superiority being tied in with racial superiority and that in turn being linked to whiteness, I do think has had an impact on how we think about um, uh ideas of power and who is better than who in different countries. I mean, like I said, my parents are from India. I've lived in India a couple of times and there's a huge amount of colorism there. This idea that to be fair is to be better. That isn't to say that to be European is better. There's a lot of confusion about this, that, that sometimes outsiders think that in India, people assume that people want to be white like Europeans. They don't, they want to be white like white Indians. So <laughs> to be Indian is to be superior. Mm. To, you know, this is how the Hindu nationalists frame it, to be Hindu is superior. Within that framework, there are certain people who are better than others, which is the idea of where the idea of caste comes from. And often higher castes are thought to be lighter skinned and lower castes are thought to be darker skinned. Um, so this idea of whiteness, I think, takes on different forms depending on where, where you are. Um, but it is tied in with colonialism and... Um, these kind of histories around race science and the way that 
cultural ideas about race were exported to the rest of the world by European settlers, whether that's in Australia or Africa or Asia or elsewhere. Mm. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And we internalize them. You know, we still internalize these ideas and we still think about, uh, we still, they, they still affect how we behave and how we dress and how we think about each other. Um, it's so pernicious. It's so difficult to remove yourself from that. Um, and it takes conscious effort every day to remember that actually these ideas are just arbitrary and meaningless and we have to think beyond them. And well, I wanted to maybe uh, pick up on that before before we end. So obviously, the one of the great things about being able to talk about um, uh, science in the context of conversations around race is that maybe we can help debunk some of the popular assumptions that people carry around uh, differences between uh, ethnic groups. And there are assumptions that are popularized, whether it's to do with sporting ability, dancing ability. Um, and I just was wondering if you could maybe debunk some of the uh, most widespread tropes that we hear <laughs> around racial differences. Well, what I, uh, you know, people often say that certain groups of people are better at certain things, and especially in sport, you hear that a lot. You know that uh, Kenyans are really make really brilliant runners. That's why we have so many brilliant Kenyan runners um, winning all the medals. But let's remember, I'm in Britain, a very very small nation uh, in terms of population, um, and white British athletes have always done disproportionately well athletically on the world stage. At no point has anybody ever said that white Britons somehow have some kind of superior physical edge that makes them do well. Mm. And yet Africa, which is an enormous continent with a huge number of people, which we would expect to do well athletically because it's such a huge number of people, just demographically we'd expect it to do well. Why do we essentialize uh, Africans? Why do we essentialize Kenyans or South Africans or wherever people come from who are doing well athletically? We essentialize people who do not belong to the population that we live in. And we do that for a number of reasons. I think it's because the society that we're in, we can see for ourselves the huge amount of variation within the society that we, we're in. We know that there are some people who are good at sport. We know that there are some people who are good at other things and politics or maths or whatever. We see the diversity because it's right next to us. Mm. When we think about people who we're not familiar with in other countries, we essentialize because we only see a subsection of those people. For some people in Britain, the only Kenyans they know are the ones that they see winning marathons on TV. So then they essentialize about Kenyans. They think that all Kenyans are good at running marathons. Of course, that's not the case. It just beggars belief that that would be the case. It mm. can't be. Um, but because that's all you see, you essentialize about that group of people. Um, so the argument I always make is, why do you not do that about white Britons who do well athletically? You know, yeah. white Britons do disproportionately well in athletics. Why do we not assume that they have some kind of genetic edge? So um, can we just be clear, it is not possible to make any generalizations about people based on their ethnic makeup as a group. It's not possible to say, as some people, you might hear people say, oh, black people can't swim, white people can't <laughs> dance. You hear these statements all the time. They're part of popular culture. Uh, you might even hear it said from people from that ethnic group themselves, these are generalizations with zero scientific basis. Is that correct? These are cultural ideas. 
These are cultural ideas. These are ideas that come from often from the 19th century, these kind of essentializing ideas about who we are, and they've survived and persisted. Um, and it's just based on the differences we can see culturally. Even um, now, now, for example, one example I often give is of Indian doctors. There are, you know, a huge number of Indian doctors worldwide. Are Indians any better at being doctors than any other group? Of course not. Oh, I haven't this, heard this, this one. Maybe we should start this propensity. one. <laughs> there's just a cultural kind of uh, reverence around the medical profession in India. Culturally, children are, are encouraged to become doctors or to join the medical profession. And so you get a lot of Indian doctors as a result. It makes perfect sense that that would happen because this is something that's prized. And in other societies, different cultural ideas are prized. There are certain communities in which running is important. Now, if you've been running from a very young young age and in your society, you're expected to run a lot and and there's there've been a number of athletes in your group and you know that that's a channel for you to become more successful, you will run a lot and you will do that. Mm. A lot of sporting success is down to hard work rather than natural talent. You know, there's that I mean, they both play a role, there's no doubt. But that natural talent is spread all over the world. What makes the big difference in how we see that difference play out is cultural and social. So it's not to say that there might not be some kind of marginal uh, edge that some certain community might have because of the conditions that they've lived in or whatever. We don't, we don't actually have a huge amount of data on that. So we can't say there's no gene for running, for instance, so we don't know. Yeah. But we do know that when effort, cultural effort is put into encouraging sport in a community, those people do well in that sport, which is why you're seeing so many new athletes coming up uh, from China and Korea and other places, because effort is being put into uh, training them. Mm. Very interesting. Thank you so much. Just before we lock off, I always like to ask people, uh, what is your biggest frustration around current conversations on race in the UK? Uh, and I ask this because obviously you have just been off uh, social media for a month because of the trolling that you've received. But I think anyone that ventures into this conversation does so with a lot of fear and anxiety. Um, yes. And so, uh, and, there's, and there's a lot of reasons for that. So I just would love to hear what's your biggest frustration and what do you think we can do to improve that conversation going forward so that we can actually be more open and honest about these really important issues? I think for me at the moment, the biggest frustration would be that racism has been turned into a political issue. Racism should be unacceptable wherever you sit on the political spectrum. It should only belong to those on the very extreme end of politics so that we are able to call it out. But for some reason, racist remarks and racist discourse have entered the mainstream of politics and it's become a left-right issue. So I hear some people on the right um, saying things like, uh, though, you know, complaining about anti-racists. Anti-racism should be a position that we all take. You know, it shouldn't be kind of, you know, just the left has a claim on anti-racism. The right, and, and I mean here the centre-right or the conservative right, rather than the far right, which of course does have a claim on racism. But mm. um, we should all be anti-racist here. And I get very worried that this is becoming a politicised issue. It shouldn't be. It should be completely free of that. 
And we should all accept that racism is wrong wherever it comes from and think about it in those terms rather than turning into a political kind of uh, football, which I think I feel it is at the moment. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this conversation and this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Uh, very much look forward to your future publications. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mariam. It was lovely to be on your programme. Thank you.